This is Ticker Symbol U, a podcast focused on highlighting advanced technologies that are transforming our lives and disrupting their competitors in the process. My name is Alex, and I'm definitely not a financial advisor. I'm just a nerd that loves sharing my personal vision of the future and putting my money where my mouth is. To learn more, find me at tickersymbolu.com or youtube.com slash tickersymboluyou. Let's start with this. Inflation is much too high, and we understand the hardship it is causing. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell just approved the biggest interest rate hike since 2000, and the stock market is plummeting. He knows we're caught between record high inflation and the risk of a recession. But there's just one problem. Many of the things causing this inflation are out of the Fed's control. Want to know how bad the stock market might really get over the next few months? My name is Alex, and I'll show you exactly what's going on. Let's start with what the Federal Reserve actually does. The Federal Reserve has two main goals, maximize employment and keep prices stable. Those are actually two sides of the same coin. Here's how it works. When employment is high, everyone has money to buy goods and services. That means demand goes up while supply stays the same. So businesses raise their prices. On the other hand, if unemployment gets too high, there's way more supply than demand, since people can no longer afford to buy those same goods and services. So prices go down to entice people to spend. That's the basic connection between price stability and employment. So there's a sweet spot for the Fed to be aiming for that keeps unemployment low enough and keeps prices stable enough. Right away, we can see there are some big challenges here. First, even if the underlying causes of inflation are transitory or temporary, at least some of the inflated prices might not be. Think about the prices at the restaurants and shops that you go to today. You've probably seen prices go up over time, but when's the last time you saw those same prices come back down? Businesses are quick to raise their prices, but they're very slow to lower them. The second problem is that the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, looks at the average change of prices over time. These are changes that already happened. That means that inflation is something that we measure in the rear view mirror, and it's not taking into account current supply chain disruptions. And the thing is, these supply chain disruptions are actually getting worse. The war between Russia and Ukraine is continuing to spike the prices of commodities like wheat and oil. Wheat prices are at 40-year record highs. The war is also causing a worldwide fertilizer shortage right now, which is going to cause a food shortage later in the year due to all the crops that didn't get planted. Separately from that, two of China's largest cities recently imposed heavy new restrictions related to the pandemic. One of those cities is Zhengzhou, which is the home to the world's largest iPhone factory. Apple said that the lockdowns would likely cost them 4 to $8 billion in sales over the quarter, and that's completely separate from the ongoing chip shortage. What do you think all this is going to do to the prices of electronics in the future? So... Food, energy, and consumer goods are all going to keep going up in price, inflating future CPI numbers. Okay, so it's the Fed's job to keep prices stable, but businesses aren't exactly known for lowering their prices, and many of the factors causing this record inflation are out of the Fed's control. Now let's talk about what's in the Fed's control and how that affects stocks. The way the Fed balances unemployment and inflation is by controlling interest rates and the supply of money. Let's cover interest rates first. The Federal Reserve just raised something called the federal funds rate, which is also called the overnight lending rate. The overnight lending rate is the interest rate that banks charge each other when they borrow money from each other in the overnight market. 
The overnight market might sound like a Netflix miniseries, but it's actually just a bunch of bankers settling up their transactions at the end of the day by lending or borrowing money from each other after hours. Those loans have an interest rate, which is this overnight lending rate. So when the Federal Reserve raises the overnight lending rate, they're basically making money more expensive for banks to borrow from each other. And those costs get passed along to you and me in the form of mortgages, credit cards, and loans all becoming more expensive. When money is more expensive to borrow, individuals have less money to spend and businesses have less money to pay individuals. So overall demand goes down and unemployment can start to rise. That's how interest rates are connected to prices and unemployment. Here's how they connect to growth stocks. Higher interest rates make it harder for companies to borrow money. Young companies that are still growing don't have a lot of cash on hand, so they often need to raise or borrow money to build new teams and fund new projects. This is a real double whammy, though, because rising interest rates also make bond yields rise. Bonds are safe investments, so when their yields rise, stocks need to perform even more to justify buying them instead of the safer, now larger returns of bonds. That risk gets priced in and growth stocks tend to go down in price. But when a company's stock price goes down, they need to sell more shares for the same amount of money. So it's a vicious cycle of interest rates making it harder to borrow money by taking loans and raise money by selling stocks, which leads to slower growth, which leads to an even lower stock price, and so on. The reason all growth companies get hit this way, regardless of if they're in genomics or robotics or fintech, is because they don't have big cash reserves or high free cash flow. That's why it's so important to diversify into assets that can generate solid returns but don't correlate with growth stocks. That's why I partnered with Masterworks.io, the only platform that lets you invest in physical multi-million dollar paintings without breaking the bank. According to reports by Citibank, contemporary art almost tripled the S&P 500's total returns from 1995 to 2020, and fine art had the lowest correlation to stocks of any major asset class. That's exactly what we're looking for. Recently, Masterworks sold a painting by Albert Olin, returning almost 34% to investors after fees. Here's how you can go invest. You just go to masterworks.io, select the number of shares of the painting that you want, and then buy them, similar to how you already buy stocks today. Then you either wait for the painting to be sold, or if you want your money sooner, you can sell your shares on their secondary market. It's that easy, and right now, they're giving my audience VIP access, which lets you skip their waitlist. I'll leave a link to that exclusive offer for you in the description below. Okay, let's get into the numbers. The Federal Reserve just raised the overnight lending rate by 50 basis points, or half a percent. That's the biggest interest rate increase since 2000. If you're curious about what was going on in 1980, inflation was nearing 15% and unemployment was close to 7%. It was a crazy time for the economy, so the Fed bumped interest rates up to almost 20%. But the federal funds rate has been close to zero for most of the time since 2008, and they brought it back to zero when the pandemic began in March of 2020. This past week, we had the second of seven planned rate hikes in 2022, and back in March, I said I expect multiple half percent rate hikes this year, and I still think that's true. By some estimates, the federal funds rate is expected to be close to 3% by early 2023. The important thing to understand here is that the federal funds rate is not the same thing as the interest rate on a loan. When the Fed raises interest rates by half a percent, 
other kinds of loans and credit rates can go up by a few percent at a time. For example, since the Federal Reserve announced their plans to increase interest rates last fall, the 30-year mortgage rate has spiked by almost 2%, from 3% all the way up to 5 So mortgages come with way more interest now than they did just a few months ago, which should, in theory, cool off the demand in the housing market. Likewise, rising rates on every kind of loan should curb demand for borrowing money, which also lowers spending. This is why the Fed has such a hard job. There's a delicate balance between stopping runaway inflation and causing a recession. Like I mentioned in the beginning, the Fed actually has two tools to keep this balance, interest rates and controlling the money supply. Remember the money printer? That's called quantitative easing. What that actually means is that the Federal Reserve buys bonds on the open market, which means they're adding new cash to the market. When there's more money, there's more investing and borrowing and spending. When spending on goods and services goes up, companies do better. When spending on stocks goes up, stocks do even better. Eventually, the economy and the stock market tend to strengthen and the Fed can begin taking that money back out of the economy. So, quantitative tightening is where they sell those bonds back and keep the cash, which means they're taking that money out of the market. Less investing, less borrowing, and less spending. And when that happens, companies and stocks do worse. So, let's look at what happened to the S&P 500 as the Fed increased and reduced the money supply over time. Last time, they removed around $600 billion per year from the economy, or about $50 billion per month. And it took them three years to start quantitative tightening. This time, they're starting almost immediately after turning the money printer off. Jerome Powell said that the Fed will begin shrinking its $9 trillion balance sheet soon, and by September, it will be taking about $95 billion out of the economy each month. Last time the Fed did quantitative tightening, they took out about half the money they printed a few years earlier before the recession scares in 2019 stopped them. If the same holds true this time, they'll take out about $2.25 trillion. That means at a rate of $95 billion per month, this round of quantitative tightening could last around 18 to 24 months. From the start of 2018 to October of 2019, the baseline S&P 500 volatility index was 30% higher on average, 3-0. At its worst, it was three times more volatile. During that same period, the S&P 500 only returned around 10%, which is less than a 6% return per year. And during that same period, RK returned just 13%, hardly any better than the S&P 500. From now until the beginning of 2024, the Federal Reserve plans to raise interest rates roughly twice as fast while taking money out of the market twice as fast. And again, this doesn't account for the ongoing supply chain issues, the ongoing effects of the Russia-Ukraine war, or the latest shutdowns in China. It only accounts for their effects so far. So, based on all of this data, I expect the S&P 500 to get much more volatile and provide lower-than-average returns over the next two years. That obviously depends on when you buy it, so I'll be looking out for even lower prices and treating them as opportunities. Even though ARK-K is way down from its peaks, they could also trade sideways over this time period. Or, you know, they can just keep going down forever. That's fine. Everything's fine. The other thing is, as the money supply gets smaller, our dollars literally become more valuable. That's why I think we should really be focused on our cash positions and how we diversify outside of the stock market as quantitative tightening keeps ramping up. Once the tightening stops and interest rates level off, that's when I think the market will stabilize and go on to make higher highs. Thanks for watching, and until next time, this is Ticker Symbol U. My name is Alex, reminding you 
that the best investment you can make is in you.